0: Hi, I'm Ashley, one of the producers here at Pitchfork Economics. We all loved Nick and Goldie's interview with Nancy McLean so much that we wanted you to hear what didn't make it into Tuesday's episode. So today's bonus is their full, unedited conversation, and we hope you like it.
1: Hello?
2: Hi, Nancy. It's Nick Hanauer.
1: Great to be with you.
2: Thank you for doing it. And this is Goldie. Yeah, he's the Ed McMahon the Ed of Mc Pitchfork Econ- Economics. Yeah. <laughs> Got it. I'm the <laughs> not Nick of, of uh, Pitchfork thank you so- Ed McMahon. Yeah. <laughs> uh, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to be with us today. Um, Rob, delighted to. Yeah, huge fans of your work.
0: I, uh, I like to think of myself as the James Buchanan. Of,
1: <laughs> no. I'm glad somebody's doing long-term thinking. Yeah. <laughs>
2: so uh, the great challenge for this conversation is where to start and where to end, because well, we I, have uh, so we, much we, to talk we about. We know one place
0: to start, and that's <laughs> to get your slate. Yeah. So if you could just uh, state your name, tell us who you are, plug your book, whatever you want to do.
1: Okay. I'm Nancy McLean. I teach uh, history and public policy at Duke University, and I am the author, most recently, of Democracy in Chains, The Deep History of the Radical Rights Stealth Plan for America.
2: So, first of all, we want to cover both your thoughts and thinking on social movements, Mm -hmm. both in history and today, Uh, but we also want to connect that to your book. And, you know, Goldie and I had a big laugh because we have been Deriding Buchanan for right. a long time, he has he, been a butt of a joke in this
0: office because we work a lot on the minimum. Really? Wa- oh yeah. Yeah yeah. He we work a lot on the minimum wage. The fifteen dollar minimum uh-huh. wage has been a focus out of this office, and there's there, there's quote from him we like to abuse. Uh, where he, Oh, the one where he
1: called the economist who supported it camp following whores? yeah camp exactly.
0: following <laughs> whores. No. And, and the, the 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 idea that just as no physicist would claim that water runs uphill, no self-respecting economist would claim that increases in the minimum wage increase employment. So we've been poking fun at that for years. And then I read your book and, oh
2: my God, we thought he was a clown. We didn't know <laughs> oh, he was an evil clown. Yeah. We had you know, no idea. Yeah, we thought, yeah, wow. yeah he, he turns out to, be, to have been an evil clown, not just a clown. You know, the, the quote interests us a lot because, the, you know, the main body of our work is tearing down neoliberalism as a meaning mm-hmm. system, as a system of thought. And the most pernicious part of the neoliberal meaning system is the claim that this is all like laws of nature. That these are the inescapable Mm -hmm. and unavoidable facts of life and, you know, so on and so forth. And this quote by Buchanan is like one of the canonical examples of that. Like he literally invokes physics, which is so interesting. But anyway, let's tell us a little bit. Just tell our listeners a little bit about your book. Let's start with that.
1: Uh, so my book started out in a very dir- different direction than the way it ended up, which sometimes happens with historians, but not they usually don't go as far afield as mine did. I was uh, looking at the state of Virginia's reaction to the Brown versus Board of Education decision, uh, particularly the policy of massive resistance that required the governor to shut any public schools that were going to desegregate, which they did in several Virginia communities. And as I started looking into that, I found that the economist Milton Friedman, another founding neoliberal uh, thinker, had actually issued his first manifesto for tax-funded school vouchers for private schools in 1955 in the full knowledge of how it would be used by Southern segregationists. So I thought, well, here's an interesting story about neoliberalism where nobody has found it before, you know, and and put it in the South in the reaction to uh, the civil rights movement and desegregation. So I was following that story when Buchanan uh, kind of appeared in my peripheral vision. And to make a long story short, he just kept appearing in other places uh, in designing the Chilean constitution, advising on the uh, Pinochet constitution uh, that has led to huge demonstrations in the streets this past year, many people being killed and actually blinded by security forces as they try to get rid of this constitution that has so bound their democracy. Uh, And then I moved to North Carolina in 2010, just after a radicalized Republican Party swept both houses of the General Assembly for the first time since Reconstruction. And it's a very different Republican Party. It was dominated by Tea Party figures, funded by the Kochs, and a local uh, cousin, people call him Art Pope. Anyway, I saw this new legislature enacting measures that were straight out of the Buchanan playbook. Uh, so I started to shift my vision to Buchanan. And when I was able to get into his private archive when he died in 2013, that really confirmed my belief that Buchanan's ideas uh, are have been weaponized by the Koch donor network to undermine the model of 20th century government in the U.S. And we can pick that apart in any way you want to. Right. And, and to be clear, you know,
0: central to our thesis is that rising economic inequality undermines democracy, but but your book, you point out that undermining democracy was exactly the point.
1: Yes, I think that is crucial to to appreciate that distinction, and I'm so glad that you raised that, because there is an emerging sense among scholars across disciplines, you know, economists, sociologists, political scientists, historians, that, that the levels of inequality that we have now in the United States are absolutely a threat to democracy uh, for reasons that you've talked about and we could talk more about. But what I found that was so interesting and, and terrifying in a way was that this anti-democratic ideology among libertarians is actually pretty systematic and deep and thoroughgoing. And what Charles Koch found in the ideas of James Buchanan was something he'd never had before, which is a strategy to impose a minority agenda. Libertarians, a teeny tiny majority of the whole population, the really, you know, hardcore ones, but a strategy to impose that ideology on the vast majority in the full knowledge that if people understood that this was happening, they would act and try to stop it. So that is, and that's hence the title of my book, too, Democracy in Chains, um, because that, and that was actually uh, language that Buchanan himself used, this language of enchaining and speaking of the demos needing to be enchained. And that was because for a hardcore libertarian like James Buchanan or Charles Koch, democratic government is necessarily a problem uh, because it leads the majority to infringe on the um, purported rights of the minority of extremely wealthy people and corporations who don't like doing what the rest of their fellow citizens believe needs to be done. Um, So what Koch got from Buchanan was a strategy for how to reverse that through incremental changes in the rules that most people wouldn't even notice until it was too late. So, Again, you know, not anything like I had ever come across before as a historian of the United States or a specialist in the history of social movements. This is really, I think of it as the anti-social movement, social movements, you know, they would like to take away the very conditions and capabilities that have enabled social movements uh, to succeed in the past. Charles Koch boasted to a donor summit last year that he said, we have made more progress together in the past five years than I've been able to achieve in the previous 50. So that that statement tells us a few things. One, how long he's been at this project. Uh, two, that it's lately stunningly successful. Um, the reason for that is Buchanan's ideas, but also the Trump administration. You know, contrary to what the pundits say, the Trump administration is moving through large parts of the Koch agenda while we are all obsessed with the figure of the president himself.
2: Absolutely. So can you give us some examples of the kind of rule changes that they were after and that they enacted?
1: Yes. Well and they've already done a lot of this uh, in the states, particularly since the 2010 midterms that had such low turnout on the, you know, on the progressive and Democratic side. So, uh, and again, my uh, state, North Carolina, is a petri dish for this. It is one of their prime laboratories. And where I went to graduate school, the University of Wisconsin, uh, Wisconsin was similarly a laboratory. So, we could start with Scott Walker, the governor of Wisconsin, who, under the misleading guise of a budget repair bill, Took away collective bargaining rights from public sector workers that they'd enjoyed for half a century. Um, That was an example of a radical rules change. And even within that law, there were all kinds of of smaller uh, uh, pieces, stipulations to ensure that it weakened unions as much as possible. Uh, That would be one example. Also, the spate of laws in states dominated by this Coke backed, Coke transformed Republican Party to suppress. Voting. So there's been a significant focus and understandable on the way that they have aimed at African American voters because that's legally actionable in the courts. But they have also aimed at young voters who are much more likely to want action on the climate, to uh, support, you know, kind of more progressive measures. You know, attempts to deal with inequality, et cetera. Uh, So, voter suppression has been another piece. The most radical and sophisticated gerrymandering we've ever seen in our political history to make it so that these Republican legislators are choosing their voters rather than letting voters choose their representatives. And in some states, the impact is absolutely breathtaking. So for example, in the 2018 midterms, Democrats in my state, North Carolina, won 50.2% of the vote, and they ended up with what was it? Two to uh, two to nine two, two seats versus nine on the Republican side. So the drawing of district lines has just been astonishing in its deliberate effort to to underrepresent voters they know would object to this agenda and try to block it and to overrepresent those on whom they feel they can rely. So those are some measures. There's also a lot of other stuff going through the courts and the you know efforts to change the legal thinking and the ju- judiciary. But at every step. Sharply focused attention to changing the rules.
0: Right. And, and to be clear, this um, the voter suppression and the gerrymandering, it's not just a, a partisan tactic in terms of just Republicans versus Democrats. It's, it, it, you point out it's ideological. They actually want less democracy. It's not just less Democrats.
1: Yeah.
0: They're going for less democracy. They think democracy is dangerous.
1: Yeah, I really appreciate your bringing that up because I think that part of our challenge in understanding what we're really up against in this country is the persistence of older terms that actually block our vision from what's happening. So the notion that this is partisan, that this is just, you know, Republicans versus Democrats or vice versa, or that this is a battle between liberals and conservatives, both of those frameworks mislead the first one, because this is no longer, you know, my father's Republican party, one could say, Um, Uh, This is a party that has been absolutely transformed by the strategic um, uh, changes to the rules and the incentives practiced by these arch-right donors. And I'll give you just one example of that. Um, Charles, the Coke Industries itself and many of the other donors are based in the fossil fuel industry, and they are desperate to stop action on the climate, which their libertarian dogma also deems inappropriate. Well, by using the power of donors to punish any Republican who didn't toe the line with a primary challenge from the right uh, and the funding of candidates who did deliver for the donors, they were able to make it such by 2014 that only eight of 278 Republicans in Congress would admit that climate change is caused by human activity, and that is a radical transformation of a party that was not much different from Democrats in the early 90s in its recognition of the science. So, I mean, it's almost like Invasion of the Body Snatchers or something, what they've managed to do to the Republican Party. So that it's not really a, a party anymore in the sense of traditional American major parties that were, co- you know, coalitions representing different interests. This Republican Party now has an almost Leninist uh, Discipline, and that is by design, from the do- the way the donors have re rigged the punishments and the incentives. So, um, just as that, you know, looking at this in terms of partisanship doesn't help. Neither does looking at it in terms of liberals versus conservatives. These are the least conservative people one could imagine. They are radicals of the right, and actually, many Republicans who have been attacked by them have realized that. So, I actually start the book with some quotations from people, including Orrin Hatch, who said when he was primaried by these people, he said, these people aren't Republicans. They're not conservatives. These people are radical libertarians. I despise these people. Those are pretty much his exact words. And yet, a few years later, it was Orrin Hatch who denied President Obama the ability even to get a hearing for his Supreme Court justice because he was so brought to heel by this Coke donor network. So I think that is an indication that we really need to shake up our thinking and recognize that something we have never known before is underway. And it's really important to understand it, to get ahead of it, and to publicize it so that people know what they are dealing with.
0: So you're a historian. Is there any historical
1: parallel to what we're seeing right now? Not really, not in this level. I mean, what you have here is it's not the whole capitalist class. It is a fraction thereof, but a significant and extremely wealthy fraction. Um, One uh, journalist, George Mombio at The Guardian, calculated that if the fortunes of Charles Koch and his recently deceased brother David Koch were combined, they would be the richest man in the world. Um, So lots of wealth, and Koch has convened over 600 uh, other donors. Owners who give large amounts, but basically it is a deeply ideological, well-funded, highly strategic, integrated long game to transform our society, and we just don't have anything else like that in our history. You know, someone could point to, say, the election of 1896 and the way that corporations rallied under the leadership of the Republican Mark Hanna. They put in crazy amounts of money uh, to defeat uh William Jennings Bryan and a kind of reform minded Democratic Party. But even that is not like this, because this effort by the Kochs also involves quite literally hundreds of separate organizations, ostensibly separate, like the Heritage Foundation, the Cato Institute, the American Legislative Exchange Council, ALEC, the Federalist Society. You know, I could go on Yeah. more organizations. you know, lots of organizations and They're moving the same plan down the road in a kind of elaborate division of labor. I mean, I wish there was more coordination like this on the progressive side in order to counter this, but we've just never seen that kind of tight coordination before.
2: Yeah. So interesting.
1: Nor, if I may say, too, the systematic disinformation, like this whole enterprise relies on disinformation, whether it is climate science denial or the support that Coke Network organizations provided to the tobacco industry, you know, when it was facing challenge to the support of Fox News and, you know, efforts like that that kind of poison public discourse. It is a a kind of a wraparound enterprise that is. uh, you know i think really toxic to democracy
0: come on nick get a
2: couple more zeros onto your net wealth and fight back what's interesting (laughs) is that uh You know, at the end of the day, if
1: I may say I so appreciate your voice, Nick, in you you. know, speaking out in trying to bring other people of wealth to the understanding that, you know, this is creating an utterly unsustainable society. And we have got to get ahead of this um if we wanna have a society that you know, that can literally survive in terms of the impending climate catastrophe, but that also You know, provides enough hope for people to believe, you know, it's worth continuing, um, you know, in their jobs and and in their lives.
2: Right, for sure. So you invoked uh, Lenin. Uh, uh, Explain that.
1: Well, that was actually. A, a really um, a kind of uh, shocking and, and weirdly kind of fun discovery of this research was that one of Charles Koch's key uh, grantees, intellectual that he patronized significantly in the late 60s and early 70s, a guy named Murray Rothbard, actually, uh, and he had come from a family, you know, a Jewish family around New York. You know, he's an intellectual polymath, read everything, and he had read Lenin. And he he there was a famous weekend in Vegas. When Charles Koch invited Murray Rothbard to Vail, Colorado, and part of the discussion was um, Murray Rothbard telling Koch he really needed to read Lenin uh, in order to understand the necessity of developing a kind of revolutionary cadre of libertarians who would be able to do things like entering much larger formations. Here you could think the Republican Party so what we've seen uh, with a small disciplined minority that would not compromise, that was extremely clear about what they wanted, uh, and that would use every opportunity in order to make the case for their kind of revolutionary program. But again, here the revolution is a kind of capitalist, a, a, an arch capitalist revolution instead of something like, you know, the Bolshevik communist revolution. But it is funny, too, in, in um, one of his books, I believe it's Good Prophet, Charles Koch actually cites Lenin among various, you know, thinkers that he's learned from. So he, he kind of confirms the point. So tell us a little
2: bit more about your work on social movements and what you learned from, you know, the sort of conservative anti-social movement and how it informs your perspective on others.
1: Sure. Uh, well, I'm, you know, all the books that I've written have involved social movements in in some way. And at some point, I realized that and then began teaching about the history of social movements, beginning with the American Revolution, uh, and working forward. And it is not common in that field to also look at social movements of the right. But I think it's essential to do because they face the cha- same challenges as other social movements in terms of identifying grievances that will move people to action, framing their Arguments, finding patrons or fund, you know, funding of some kind to keep going, using the media, et cetera, et cetera. So prior to this book, I had looked at. I almost it feels kind of bizarre now to call it mainstream movement conservatism, since some of it was so. Uh, off the charts, but I'm referring to the kind of um, movement conservatism that came together around the National Review magazine and William F. Buckley in the 1950s and the Barry Goldwater candidacy, etc. And all of that fed into this larger change that we're seeing now. But in the most recent book, Democracy in Chains, I kind of pulled out the particular thread having to do with libertarianism, organized libertarianism, uh, which at this point, whatever it once was, has been dominated by and weaponized by Charles Koch, who provides funding for virtually every libertarian entity in existence, except, ironically, the Libertarian Party, because he doesn't think that it has much value, except insofar as it might bring young recruits. So uh, obviously,
0: Nick isn't rich enough to take on uh, the Koch brothers, and there really doesn't seem to be anybody on the left willing to spend money that way uh, over a 50-year period. Uh, so we can't follow the, the plan that the Kochs and Buchanan followed. But I'm wondering if there's any lessons from uh, this movement or other uh, conservative movements that, that we can learn in terms of fighting back against this?
1: Yeah, I think there are definitely lessons that we can learn. Uh, One of them is the need for a long view, which has been... pardon me, but in short supply on the progressive side for Mm -hmm. some time now. You know, it was once the case at the early 20th century, mid-century, et cetera, where progressives were thinking long-term, where they were thinking decades ahead and what would happen in, you know, a generation or two. That is no longer the case by and large. So thinking long-term is crucial. Um, Also, getting out of the silos is crucial. You know, I mean, there's been great work done in various Um, uh, spaces of progressive politics, whether it's environmental politics or, you know, uh, dealing with economic inequality in different ways or anti-racism or feminism, etc., but our problem now is that there are, there's not enough connection between all of these uh, domains, and even within them, uh, groups are fragmented and pitted into competition against one another by funders, and so it's, it's a real problem. Uh, So those are some of the problems we face. I would say, though, I believe the single most important finding of my book is to see Charles Koch, James Buchanan, and their ilk saying again and again that they recognize that they are a permanent minority that nobody wants the program they are trying to impose and that is why they turned to stealth. They turned to stealth for the first time as near as I can tell uh, with social security in the early 1980s seeing that it had just an almost universal failings of support Buchanan came up with a scheme to try to undermine that by misleading the public, by divide and conquer uh, members of the coalition, etc. So um, that's just one example but I think Uh, if we pay attention to what is driving this on their side and focus in on that, We can help people understand what a tiny minority cause this is. In fact, when it's, you know, actually telling the truth uh, about what it seeks, we can expose that. We can help people understand the stealth measures that it's used and how it is rigging the rules in order to move through its program without having to argue openly for it. Um, And we can take advantage of the fact that there is a huge majority that this libertarian right is afraid of. It is, in a sense, a kind of dormant minority because people don't know how much they've been targeted by this libertarian right, but I do think that when uh, people come together across these various uh, differences of ideas, of democracy, of region of the country, etc., and rally to stop this and to renew democracy, that could be an incredibly powerful and transformative force so that's what I've been trying to Encourage and you know my you know I've done a lot of speaking since the book came out around the country and worked with groups of all kinds and and I will say that's an exciting thing too that everybody now realizes we are at an all hands on deck emergency moment for the future of democracy in this country and so uh, people are trying to to make bridges across the silos and work together to make structural democracy reform a top agenda item where ever progressives get power. So that, that I think is exciting. And there's people, for example, like Annie Leonard, the head of Greenpeace, you know, is saying, we realize we're never going to get a healthy environment unless we have a healthy democracy. Over at Planned Parenthood, they're saying, we realize we can't protect women's health and their reproductive rights unless we have a healthy democracy. Within labor circles, people realizing the same thing. So I'm encouraged by all that. But, you know, I think it's going to take a lot more organizing and a lot more support and a lot more public education to make sure we make the most of that potential.
0: And in fact, on a hopeful note, one of the ironies in your book is that Buchanan got his start focusing on trying to impose his ideological agenda in Virginia. And recently, the state of Virginia has completely flipped politically to the uh, Democratic side.
1: Yes. And interestingly, that the big flip came in a single cycle. So Virginia has always been, you know, um, by design, by the planter elite that, you know, crafted the rules that govern the state, very anti-democratic, you know, efforts to minimize the popular control of government. One aspect of that is off cycle elections, you know, so they're Mm -hmm. not coordinated with national ones. So this was an off cycle election. But in Virginia, mobilized Democrats closed that gap from I believe it was 66 um, Um, uh, what was it, 66, 34, I believe was the division in the House of Delegates. In a single cycle, they mobilized uh, and closed that to 50-50. So that is just stunning um, and shows what can be done. And since that's happened, they've done all kinds of things that have benefited the population uh, and that contribute to democracy reform. So another irony in this, I think, is um, Donald Trump uh, being in the White House has been so devastating and so destructive in so many ways but it's also the case that he really woke a lot of people up. Right? Yeah, for and, sure. and that is what drove that mobilization in Virginia was particularly um, not only, but the, the new, you know, the newly mobilized tended to be women uh, and white women uh, who realized, you know, who were progressive, who realized, what have we been doing? We have got to become active. And when you added that effort to people of color and labor unions and others who had been long in the trenches, it, it really proved transformative. So I think that's also an example of how by cultivating new alliances, by agreeing on some common purposes, really potentially transformative change can be won.
2: Can I ask a incre- – this is going to sound like just the dumbest question ever, but until you raised it, it just really never occurred to me to think of it in these terms. Was the American Revolution a movement of the right or the left? <laughs>
1: Um, And that's one reason I start with it, you know, in my class on the history of social movements, because, you know, in in some ways it could be said to be both. I mean, absolutely, there was a popular mobilization that involved, you know, country farmers and urban artisans and others who had been governing themselves, who saw that capacity being taken away by the British crown, who wanted to change it, and who were radicalized by their experience. So, for example, some uh, New England states ended up adopting measures against slavery after the revolution. And that's, you know, just one index of the the kind of radicalism of the revolution, but it's also the case that elites in the country were very much afraid of the rising tide of uh, abolitionist sentiment in Britain and also many, not just planters, but also farmers who were in kind of the western um, hinterlands, really wanted to take Indian land, and the British crown was standing in their way. Saying, no, you know, we don't want to fight these wars for you anymore. So the American revolution, I think like any revolution, was a very complicated uh, phenomenon that had, but, but there was a significant radicalism to it, and I think you see that in the Declaration of Independence or the writings of Thomas Paine, but then you also see the Constitution as being an effort to kind of get all that in check and channel popular sentiment and kind of um, contain, if you will, the radicalism of the revolution. And scholars of the revolution and the constitution do seem to agree about that. You know, they may disagree whether they think it was a good idea or a bad idea, but they do see the constitution as in some ways a conservative document trying to contain what had been uh, unleashed by the revolution itself.
0: Like much of American history, an incredibly immoral compromise.
1: <laughs> but I will say, too, you know, as long as we're talking about history and deep history, um, I'm often uh, asked by audiences when I speak about this challenge that we're facing from the, you know, radical Corporate right led by the Kochs. You know, it seems so daunting. It seems so systematic. It's so integrated. Sometimes, you know, people can feel overwhelmed by that. But, you know, my answer is you think you've got a challenge? Go back and look at the abolition movement. You know, they had 33 people in a room when they brought together the American Slavery, Anti Slavery Society. You know, there were enslaved African Americans who fled their conditions, who knew that they were not chattel, that they were human beings. And there were some radical white religious figures who agreed with them and thought slavery was a sin and a curse and a blight on the nation, but all the established institutions of our society were against them, higher education, the mainstream churches, the courts, the papers, everything, and yet somehow they managed to transform the consciousness of the country so much that now it 's almost impossible to explain to young people how it was that anyone ever believed they could hold another group uh, in slavery as as was done in this country so so I tend to think of. Knowing history and particularly the history of social movements as being a very empowering resource and one that can be incredibly inspiring, too, in challenging times like this, because you realize that, you know, people in the past faced in some ways much more seemingly insurmountable challenges And yet, um, and again, I think this is why the fact that we're talking about a majority being threatened by a tiny minority, um, I think that we will, I hope, Find ways to uh, to break through, to transform the public conversation, and to renew democracy in the ways that we've known it needed to be renewed and reformed for you know almost fifty years now on, on our side too. Yeah.
0: Which social movements do you find most promising today?
1: Oh, well, that's interesting. Um, well, I think there's exciting things going on in many different domains, and, you know, the um, some scholars and younger generation people, you know, use the language of intersectionality to get at that, but meaning that um, this this breaking through of silos, right, and connecting people with different um, uh, features of their identities, but I think that's happening in some really significant ways in the uh, environmental movement, and particularly among the young people who are focused focusing on the impending climate catastrophe, and I think that, uh, you know, what I see is an environmental movement that's been significantly transformed by environmental justice fights, which featured, you know, people of lesser means, often people of color, communities of color uh, that were being devastated by pollution and, you know, misuse of different kinds, and as that understanding has spread through the movement, I think it led to the the development of concepts like the Green New Deal to realize that you know if we do want to protect our planet, we've also got to do it in a way that speaks to the very pressing needs and concerns of ordinary citizens for good jobs, for economic security, for uh, sustainable communities. And and so I'd say that's, I, I kind of think that has the greatest potential to unite people across different domains at this point.
2: It's fascinating,
1: but I'm open to other arguments, yeah <laughs> <laughs> i mean another 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 case I make to students in classes is you know just looking at the lesbian and gay movement i mean, yeah, you know, in nineteen fifty five when groups first started forming to address this, they were so embattled and they were so defensive and they were so tiny in the numbers they involved, and none of them ever could have predicted that you know at this point. That marriage equality would be almost ho hum, right? That the Supreme right. Court would have supported it, that most people support it, that the dialogue has just so dramatically changed. So, um, again, I think that we need to to think big, to to dream big, but always in connection with where people are now, people who are in motion, and you know what they, you know, are willing to take up and work for. And when that happens, uh, you know, things that it would have seemed impossible do happen, and they've happened regularly in history
0: so so we have one final question for you, okay, why do you do the work you do?
1: <laughs> uh, I love that um I guess my my flip answer is because I can't imagine doing anything else, you know, just being who I am and knowing what I know and feeling as strongly as I do about these things, um but I will also say. Uh, and this might be for listeners who have not gotten involved in things yet, but who are disturbed by what they see happening in the country, in the world. People forget to mention this often, I think, but being civically active is incredibly rewarding. You know, you meet other people who share your values, who share your commitments. There's a kind of a esprit de corps to it, a fun, a camaraderie, and it is the best you know, not uh, antidepressant (laughs) that doesn't come over the counter in a jar um, to be with people who are good people who are trying to make the world better. And, you know, again, who share some of your ideas and values, but they always stretch you and challenge you. And, and there's a lot of um, joy actually along the way uh, in that, that camaraderie. So I'd say that's what keeps me going.
2: Yeah, I could not agree with you more. Civic participation, social change—it's fun, especially when you win. Yeah, <laughs> yes, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> well, Nancy, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to chat with us, uh, and thanks for your work. What's the next book?
1: Uh, can you I'm tell us? For unveiling yet? Yeah, okay, I okay. To think about
2: you could tell yeah. us, but then you'd have to kill us. Okay, that's fine. <laughs>
1: Thank you, Nick and Goldie. This has been an absolute pleasure. Thanks for your show too. It's really terrific. Okay. Bye-bye.
0: Pitchfork economics is produced by Civic Ventures. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Civic Action and Nick Hanauer. Follow our writing on Medium at Civic Skunk Works and peek behind the podcast scenes on Instagram at Pitchfork Economics. As always, from our team at Civic Ventures, thanks for listening. See you next week.